Our Father, as we come to Your Word today, we pray, Lord, that You would give us clarity of mind with this passage. Help us to understand how significant it is, and not only to have this understanding in our minds, but to have the desire in our heart to obey You, to live for You, and to love You more for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, we're going to be covering verses 1 to 6 today. Just six verses. How many times have you done something that you knew in the moment was the right thing to do, only for you to regret it later? Only for you to maybe have second thoughts later? You did the right thing in faith. You, you did something, whatever it might have been, for the sake of pleasing God, for the sake of honoring God. And yet, your conscience would not let go of it. And so, maybe you lost some sleep as you laid awake fretting about whether or not you actually made the right decision or not. The Puritan author Thomas Goodwin once wrote this. He said, quote, one who truly fears God and is obedient to Him may be found in a condition of darkness and have no light, and he may walk many days and years in that condition. End quote. What, he, what he's saying there, what he means, is that faith will often do battle with doubt and disbelief. Sometimes doubts about what you've done, whether you've done the right thing or not, will come into conflict with what you knew at the time was the right thing to do. And because our faith on, on this side of glory is so imperfect, sometimes doubt will just get the better of us. And this is why the prophet Isaiah would write, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. That's from Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10. He's basically saying the same thing that Thomas Goodwin was. He's saying that it's possible to fear the Lord and to even obey the Lord, that is, to be a Christian, and yet to feel like you are nevertheless in the dark. Like there is no light. Like you are far away from God. Like God has removed Himself from you and you just can't find comfort in the moment. It's just not feeling as sure as you were. You're just not feeling as sure as you were earlier on when you did whatever you did. But our feelings, our feelings are so deceiving, aren't they? Anybody in here ever been deceived by your feelings? Every hand should go up on that one. Our feelings very easily mislead us. They, they are deceiving. And yet, even the strongest faith can be tested in this way. And this is where Abram's faith was after all that took place in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14 was an amazing chapter for Abram. His faith was strong. His faith was shining. It was solid. It was, it was pure. It was so strong throughout the entire chapter. This war had broken out between some kings in the land. And as a result of this war, his nephew Lot had been taken prisoner of war. He'd been taken captive. And so Abram, when he hears about this, he goes after these kings' armies. He pursues these kings' armies and slays these armies. 
And he rescues Lot. And he finds all the possessions that were plundered from Sodom. And he brings it all back to Sodom from the clutches of the enemy. And upon returning home, he's greeted by two kings. One representing the world, King Bera of Sodom. And one representing righteousness, King Melchizedek of Salem. And he chooses correctly. He doesn't choose the enticements of the world. He chooses to align himself with Melchizedek. So he doesn't keep all the spoils of war for himself. He doesn't want the world's help in accumulating riches and treasure. But you would think he would be feeling on top of the world after that, wouldn't you? But he's not. Rather than feeling on top of the world, he feels like he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. You ever been there? He's walking in the light. He did what was right. But he feels like he's just lost in darkness. So today we're going to look at one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. This is certainly the most important passage in all of Genesis. Probably the most, po- uh, the most important chapter, or the most important uh, passage in all of the Old Testament. Perhaps the most important passage in the entire Bible, as three chapters are devoted to expounding on what Moses writes in chapter 6 in this, in this verse, in this passage. And so the person who doesn't understand what's going on here, the person who doesn't understand all the ramifications of what takes place here and what is said here, is going to have a lot of trouble wrapping their mind around all that the New Testament teaches about biblical faith. So this would be kind of the Old Testament equivalent of John 3.16. So we start with chapter 15, verse 1. And we find out what's going on here. Verse 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. After these things. These things refers immediately back to chapter 14. It's as if there isn't a chapter break here. It goes right back to what happened in in chapter 14 where Abram's faith in the moment, in in this chapter, in, in chapter 14, was very mature, very strong. And he was obedient to God throughout. And here's the thing. It's not uncommon to struggle with thoughts and feelings of nagging doubt following strenuous victories. Abram has completed a a, a long journey and a fierce battle. And as he comes back, man, he is he's tired. He's just he's worn down. They they didn't have, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles back then. He made this by foot or or by horseback or or whatever, but it was a strenuous, strenuous trip. And so he comes back and he is just exhausted, not just physically tired, he's not just emotionally tired, he's also spiritually worn down. And this is what theologians would call the dark night of the soul. It often comes right after the brightest of days. It caused David to have sleepless nights in which he'd wake up with a, with a pillow soaked in tears. It caused Elijah to flee to the hills after he defeated the false prophets on Mount Carmel. And as he, as he flees, he's begging God, please just take my life away from me already. This is the dark night of the soul. Where they did the right thing, but in the aftermath, 
They're wrestling with doubt. They're wrestling with uncertainty. They're not sure that they did the right thing. They're not sure that they're even useful anymore. And this is more than just you know, common fatigue. This is more than just feeling down or, or feeling sad. This is more than just a common depression. This is a depression of the entire person. It's a crisis of faith that involves the heart, the mind, the soul, and the spirit. And it feels in this moment like God is just absent. It feels like maybe He has abandoned you. Maybe it feels like He's just completely apathetic toward what you did. Like He didn't even notice. Or He doesn't even care. But here's the thing. God didn't create us to be without emotions. He didn't create us as emotionally vacuous robots. He created us to have feelings. He created us to have emotions. And in this instance, Abram is struggling with his feelings. His feelings are deceiving him. The way he feels in the aftermath are deceiving him. They're leading him to doubt God. He was faithful and and fearless in the events that led up to this point, but now fear has reached in and it's got a grip on his heart and it just won't let go. And make no mistake about it, Abram knows God. And up here, he has the right information. But his heart, his heart is deceiving him. His feelings are leading him astray. And so in the darkness of the night, in, and in the midst of wrestling with the dark night of the soul, Abram is confronted with a burst of, of proverbial light. The word of the Lord appears to him in a vision. And isn't it strange, as, as you read this, it says the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and, and he says this, but it never tells us what he saw. He receives this vision, but we have no idea what appeared to him or what, what it looked like or what, what visually took place because it's not as important as what he heard. It's not as important as what he heard. He heard God himself reassure Abram. He says, fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And here we see actually two phrases that are going to be repeated throughout Scripture a lot And this is the first time that we see them. The first time we see the phrase, the word of the Lord came, is right here. And this is is a, a, a phrase that we will see over a hundred times in the Old Testament between Genesis chapter 15 verse 1 and Zechariah chapter 8 verse 18. A hundred plus times this phrase shows up. And it shows us the ever nearness of God. It also shows us the awareness of God. Notice that Abram hasn't even had time or the energy or the willpower to articulate some kind of prayer to God. God is aware of what's going on inside of Abram's heart before Abram even says a word. So it shows us God's nearness. It shows us His awareness. It shows us His timeliness. It also reveals the authority of God, the sovereignty of God, because His Word always speaks with sovereign authority and power. So this is the first time that we see the phrase, the Word of the Lord came. The second phrase that we see here for the first time is fear not. Fear not. Something so simple and yet something 
so difficult in the moment. And we see it throughout Scripture, and this is the first time that we see it. And what this tells us, what these words tell us is what's going on inside Abram's heart. He's afraid. He's afraid. Now, we don't know exactly what he's afraid of, but he's afraid. He had defeated the armies of these kings. He had refused to be enticed by earthly treasure. And now his faith and his feelings have come to a head-on collision. And his feelings are getting the better of him. Now, some Christians will fall into the error of saying, um, you know, check your, check your intellect at the door as you come in. And others will say, you know, check your heart and your emotion and your feelings at the door when you come in. But neither one of those things is good. Neither one of those things is healthy. Neither one of those things, most importantly, is biblical. No, balance is the key. God made us to have emotions. He made us to also be intellectual. And it's foolish, yes, to allow your emotions to control you, but it's just as foolish to ignore or neglect or completely suppress your emotions. You aren't a religious robot. You know, a robot doesn't feel anything. It just does what it's programmed to do. It has no emotions. It has no feelings. And that's not you. That's not me either. We have emotions. But at the same time, we can't let our emotions guide us. We can't let our emotions control us. Our heart is deceitful above all things. So what's Abram afraid of? We can take some guesses based on what the Word of the Lord says to him. The first thing he says to him is, I will be your shield. Abram's just defeated these kings. And kings aren't exactly known for taking defeat lightly. And so it seems that in this moment, in the aftermath of these great victories, Abram is afraid of these kings hunting him down, coming after him, and doing, killing him. Who knows what? Taking him as a slave. Who knows what? And so he's afraid that these kings are not just going to come after him, but after being defeated, they're going to come after him with vengeance and with greater numbers than he found when he defeated them. So God assures him that he will be Abram's shield. But it also seems that he's thinking that he made the wrong decision in turning down all of the riches, all the the spoils of war, all the earthly treasure. And so God assures him again, your reward shall be very great. Not just great. Your reward shall be very great. And so in his exhaustion, what we see here is that Abram has just taken his eyes off of the Lord for maybe even just the briefest moment. And he finds himself suddenly drowning in a raging sea of disbelief. And as deep as that sea may be, what this one verse shows us is that however deep that sea may be, God's grace is always deeper. No matter how strong the tides of doubt may be, they will not drag Abram away because God's grace is stronger. Who would protect Abram from the vengeance of these kings? God would. What would be his reward for faithfulness and obedience unto God at the end of chapter 14? God would. God would be his refuge. God would be his 
reward. God alone was his portion. And so God is teaching Abram here, as he would teach every last one of us, that he alone is enough. He alone is his refuge and reward. And that he alone is able to give him everything that he needs for God's plans to be fulfilled. And so, Abram can just rest and be content with what he's got, with what God has given him. He's got God, and so he's got everything that he needs. What can the wisest, what kind of plan could the wisest men in all the world concoct against God? What kind of plan, what kind of battle strategy could the fiercest of men concoct in an attempt to thwart God's plans? that he wouldn't absolutely laugh at and squash. The 46th Psalm of the Scottish Psalter of 1650 says this. This is a great poem. We need to turn this into a song. It says, God is our refuge and our strength in straits of present aid. Therefore, although the earth remove, we will not be afraid. And it goes on to say, Our God, who is the Lord of hosts, is still upon our side. The God of Jacob, our refuge, forever will abide. That is such a confident poem. Such a confident psalm. Do you have that confidence? Do you have the confidence that when the earth shakes, God is on your side? And so you can rest like a baby. Your emotions will tell you one thing, maybe. And you can listen to them, you can acknowledge them, you can, you can be aware of them, but don't be led by them in the moment. So how do you avoid being led into faithlessness? How do you avoid the doubts that you might have getting the best of you in the dark night of the soul? By using the Word of God and the promises of God in His Word as your anchor. And this is why I encourage you guys to memorize it. This is why I encourage you to know it. This is why I preach it week in and week out. So that when the waves of unbelief start lapping up against you, you can stand strong by sending the anchor of God's Word down to the depths of your doubt and standing firm on the promises of God. Now, I'm just going to give you a few practical suggestions for verses to memorize that that have the promises of God at the heart of them so that in these moments when you're wrestling with doubt, you you can go to verses like these, two of my favorites, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, that has earned me several hours of sleep just knowing that verse. Romans 8.28 For we know that God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. I can't even tell you how many trials and valleys I've gone through that that verse has been my anchor. I have these verses memorized because they are my go-to verses. So I asked a couple of you guys what some of the verses that you guys go to how about this one? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16-18. to 18. So we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. That's an anchor verse. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. These are anchor verses. So that when you are struggling with doubt, when you are wrestling with the dark night of the soul, you have something to hold on to. You have a promise of God in your heart, in the depths of your heart, to hold on to and to go to and to find refuge and comfort in. Here's the point. Whatever your go-to verse might be, whatever the promises that you, that you cling to might be, don't seek from the world what you can only find in God's Word. Modern psychology has all kinds of cures for anxiety or, or fear. But don't look to the world for what is only found in God's Word. Comfort, assurance, promises of God that last for eternity. Don't seek from within yourself what can only be found in Christ. The cure is not to avoid fearing completely. The cure is to fear God. That is to fear rightly. To fear God and you have nothing else to fear. Abram listened to God's words. And I'm sure that he was comforted by these words. But at the same time, we're going to see that he still has some nagging doubts, some nagging questions. He's still confused about God's promises. And so we continue looking at verses 2-4. to four. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. In the chapters that have led up to this point, God has made some incredible promises to God and He's clarified or to, to Abram and He's clarified these promises that He made to Abram to bless him. And these were promises that would have seemed impossible on the surface to man. And yet Abram believed that God was completely capable of fulfilling these promises that He had made. And the promise, at the heart of the promise, was the offspring that Abram would have this offspring who would receive, who would inherit this land to which God had led him. Abram had started out in Ur of the Chaldeans. God led him to this land. And first he says, your, your offspring will, will receive this land. He clarifies that and he says, you and your offspring will receive this land. And this is not only going to be one offspring, but his descendants are going to be too numerous for anyone to count. But here's the thing. And Abram knows it. He's old. He's an old man. It's been a lot of years already since he left Ur of the Chaldeans. And the clock is just ticking. 
The clock is ticking. Time is passing away. He's not getting any younger, and neither is his wife. In their old age, they're thinking, how are we going to have an offspring when we are so old that it would be impossible for us to do it? Sarai's womb was still just as barren as it was back in chapter 11 when they left Ur of the Chaldeans. And so Abram is starting to wonder. He, he's confused and he's starting to wonder if maybe, maybe he didn't quite understand what God had promised him. Maybe he didn't quite understand what this promise really involved. And so he was distressed toward God. But he didn't disrespect God. Look at how he addresses him. Verse 2, O Lord God, it's the first time we see that specific combination of words addressed to God. O Lord God. Which shows that he hadn't forgotten who God was. And he hadn't forgotten who he was either. He, he was confused. Maybe he was a little bit upset. But he doesn't allow his confusion to cause him to sin. Now some people will say, you know, it's okay to be mad at God. Just go ahead and let Him have it. And I would say, I don't think that that's exactly wise. That's encouraging somebody to sin. No, you can be upset with God and you can air your grievances with God, but you should do so remembering that you are not God and that He is. He's still God. You still aren't. And neither am I. Abram respectfully and reverently airs his grievances with God. He's basically thinking, what good is it if I have all this stuff? What good is it if people from Egypt to Canaan know my name and, and fear me? What good is it if I have all this, this land that I've inherited if I don't have an offspring who's going to inherit? And God, the, the clock is ticking. That's what he's thinking. He's wondering if God actually meant to bless his servant, Eliezer of Damascus, instead of blessing Abram. So he's blessing Abram, but he, it's really toward more uh, blessing Eliezer of Damascus. That's what Abram is wondering. He's wondering, did I agree to a raw deal? Not because God is a liar or a cheater, but because I was too thick-headed to understand it. I, I, I agreed to it out of ignorance and misunderstanding. See, Abram had believed in God's promises. He believed that God had this incredible plan that he was working out. And he knew that God was capable of doing it, and he knew that God had been abundantly graceful unto him. But it felt differently. It felt like God was just dragging his feet. It felt like God was silent. It felt like God was absent. It felt like God was resting on his laurels. It felt, it felt, it felt. Our feelings are so deceiving. And God responds ever so patiently, ever so graciously. He could have rebuked Abram for this complaint, for this grievance. And it would have been completely just. God doesn't owe anybody anything. He doesn't owe Abram an explanation. He doesn't owe Abram an offspring. But instead, 
of responding in wrath. God responds in mercy. And He clarifies His promises. And He assures Abram that Eliezer wouldn't be the offspring who inherits all this stuff. One of the things that we have to understand and one of the things that every Christian eventually is going to have to come to terms with at some point is that God works in His own ways by His own watch. He works in His own ways by His own watch. He's got His sovereign plans and purposes. But how exactly they unfold and when they unfold aren't up to us. God has the perfect timing. God is always perfect in His timing. And He works according to that. The truth is that Yes, the clock is ticking. Yes, Abram and Sarai were getting older and older and older, right? But that was God's plan. His plan was for them to become so old by the time they had this offspring that God would get all the glory. Because everybody would realize that it would be impossible for Abram and Sarai to have done it any other way. And so God will be the one to get all the glory. And this is the way God planned on fulfilling His promises. Let's continue. Verse 5. And He brought him outside. God brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then He said to him, So shall your offspring be. So He's, he's reassured him that the promises stand and that it is going to be his, his seed. It's going to be His Son who will be the offspring. It won't be Eliezer of Damascus. And so God then leads him outside of His tent under the canopy of the night sky. And He tells Abram to look up. To look up at all the stars. This was before there were big cities that prevented you from seeing the night sky as clearly as you can if you go up to the mountains or someplace where you're away from the big city lights. And Abram had actually spent most of his life looking at these stars as he worshipped the moon god back in Ur of the Chaldeans. He had probably spent a lot of nights looking up at the sky, looking at the stars. Who knows, who knows, maybe at one point he had aspired to count all the stars in the sky. Maybe he thought, I'll be the first one to count all the stars in the sky. We don't know. But the point is, God uses all the stars in the sky to illustrate how numerous his descendants would be. Now, science estimates that there are about 10 billion galaxies just in the observable universe. That's all that we've, that we've been able to observe at this point. And it seems like every couple years they are able to expand that more and more. But at this point, there are 10 billion galaxies in the observable universe. And each one of these observable universes or these observable galaxies has an average of 100 billion stars. And so if you just do some, some basic math, 10 billion times 100 billion you get a one followed by a lot of zeros. Basically, you get a billion trillion stars just in the observable universe. 
And we have to understand, God isn't saying that that's how many offspring he would have. There haven't been a billion trillion people. I don't think that it would be possible for there to be a billion trillion people in all of the earth's history just because we've got limited resources. But the point is that just like you can't count all those stars, you can't count how many descendants you're going to have, Abram. That's what God is saying to Abram. So even in the darkness, even when it feels like God is absent, even when it feels like God has abandoned him, God is present. And Abram can trust in God's promises. And the same holds to us. The same applies to us. Even in the darkness of the soul, even when you're wrestling with the dark night of the soul, you can look to the promises of God and you can count them as good as done. And what is Abram's response? God has shown him that whether he looks up at the sky or whether he looks down at the dust on the ground a couple chapters ago, his offspring is sure. His descendants are going to become so numerous that nobody will be able to count them. And so how does he respond now? Outwardly, his response is just silence. If it was me, I think my mouth, my jaw would just be on the floor. Wow. So outwardly, he's silent. But inwardly, something amazing, something miraculous is taking place inside of Abram's heart. Let's look at verse 6. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram's response to these incredible promises is to have faith. His response to this promise that your, your descendants will be as uncountable as the stars in the night sky is to believe. He has faith that God can do what God has promised to do. Giving us what many would consider to be the most important verse in the Old Testament. Right here, chapter 15, verse 6. Maybe even the most important verse in the entire Bible. And why is this verse so important? There are a lot of reasons. We don't have time to cover all the reasons that this verse is so important. But among the primary reasons is the fact that this is the only way that anyone ever receives the righteousness of God. There is only one way to receive God's righteousness and that is for him to credit it to you. Because God's own righteousness is the only righteousness he recognizes. It's the only, rec- the only righteousness he acknowledges. This is the doctrine of imputation. Right here, at the beginning of the Old Testament, the doctrine of imputation, God's perfect righteousness being imputed, being transferred, being credited, being reckoned, whatever your translation might say, unto the one who has faith. And this is at the very heart of the Gospel. The Gospel is that Christ took the sins of His people upon Himself. Our, our, our unrighteousness was, was transferred, was credited to Him. And in exchange, His perfect righteousness was credited to everyone who places saving faith in Christ. And here it is. The basis of the doctrine of imputation. Chapter 15, verse 6 of Genesis. 
And we have to understand that Abram's act of believing was not itself an act of righteousness per se. No, it was trusting in God's promises that opened up the doors for him to receive the perfect righteousness of God credited or imputed to him. So this verse shows us that even prior to Moses receiving the law, there was only one way that a person could be declared righteous by God. There was only one means of justification, and that is through, by grace alone, through faith alone. And so if you don't understand what this verse is revealing about the nature of salvation, if you don't understand what this verse is revealing about the nature of God and what pleases Him, if you don't understand what this is teaching about salvation, about being saved, about being made right with God, about justification, then nothing else in Scripture is going to make a whole lot of sense to you. This verse actually plays a central role in New Testament theology too. It would be directly quoted word for word three times in the New Testament. Once in Romans, once in Galatians, once in James. And every single time it gets quoted, it's, it's being quoted for the sake of showing, of demonstrating that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And it has never been and it never will be by works. You can't be good enough. You can't be upstanding enough. You can't be religious enough. You must have God's righteousness because He recognizes, He acknowledges no other righteousness. And that's always come through faith. Let's look at Romans chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 3-5. to five. Listen to what Paul writes here. Verses 3-5. to he says, For what does the Scripture say? Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The entire fourth chapter of Romans is an exposition of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It's all clarifying exactly what took place in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. A whole chapter. The same is true of, Genesis, uh, of uh, Galatians chapter 3, by the way. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. And you'll want to keep your Bibles open to, uh, to Galatians chapter 3 if you, if you have your Bible with you. Verses 6 to 9 say this, Just as Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Did you catch what he said there? He said that God proclaimed the gospel message to Abraham. The point here is that God's promise to bless all the nations through Abram would be fulfilled by grace alone, through faith alone. And that faith is what makes someone Abram's offspring. 
Abram's descendants. The Jews in Jesus' time would argue that, that Abraham was their father, and Jesus said, no, he wasn't, because if he was your father, you'd have the faith that he had. No, to become a child of Abraham means to have the faith that Abraham had. Some will say that the cure for anxiety is to think back and to look back on some kind of promise that you made to God at some point in your life. Others would say the cure for anxiety, the cure for depression is just to to claim the victory, to speak words of faith, and the, the power of your words will assure the victory for you. Can I just say something kind of radical and revolutionary? Neither one of those ideas is biblical. Neither one of those ideas is ever found in Scripture. No, you... You should not put any faith at all in the promises that you have made to God. You should put your faith in the promises that God has made to you. The promises that God has made to all who will place saving faith in Christ. You can't speak words of power. God can speak words of power. Biblical faith is never in what we have said. Biblical faith is never in what we have done. It's not in anything about us at all. Biblical faith is always in God. Biblical faith is always in the promises that God has made in His Word. In His Word. Like Abram, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. And yet we have to understand that the faith that saves us works. What did James say? James said that if your faith does not work, it is dead. Faith without works is dead. The cure, the solution for wrestling with doubts, for wrestling with unbelief in the dark night of the soul is not to follow your feelings, but it's also not to ignore your feelings. So what do you do? You take your fears. You take your cares. You you take all your anxieties. And Peter says, you cast it all on Him because He cares for you. You cast it all on the Lord. You give it all to Him. And you remember that He's the sovereign God who's in charge of everything. Everything that happens, everything that takes place, He either causes or He allows. He has sovereignly decreed everything that happens. Nothing can happen apart from His permissive will. Remember His Word. Remember His promises. They will hold you fast in the dark night of the soul. Remember that Christ suffered in your place. Remember that Christ was your sacrificial Sacrifice your, 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 your personal substitutionary sacrifice in your place, taking your place, bearing God's wrath against your sins so that you could be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, made right before God. Stand on God's promises. Stand on Christ as your solid ground, your solid rock. He alone is our portion. He alone is our all in all. Now, before we end, there there is a very important question that we should address here. And that is, what exactly did Abraham or Abram believe? What what did he believe that 
caused God's righteousness to be credited unto him? Did he just believe that God exists? Was that enough? Or, or maybe you can take that a little bit further. Maybe he believed that God existed and that, that God was going to give him an abundance of, of offspring. Because if that's the case, I mean, couldn't somebody just say, well, you know, I believe that God promised to, to bless Abraham, and wouldn't that be enough to have God's righteousness imputed to us? No. We know that, that Abram believed God. He believed what God said from the very beginning. Back when he was uh, living in Ur of the Chaldeans and God called him to leave his homeland. He believed God and so he followed Him. He's demonstrated saving faith from the very beginning of his story. Back in chapter 11. He was justified back in chapter 11. But Moses, as the author, has waited until this point almost four chapters later, to tell us that Abram was justified by faith. So why does he do it here? Why at this point in the story does Moses make this connection? Well, Martin Luther believed that, uh, that he'd been saved, that, that Abram had been saved all the way back in chapter 11. But he taught that Moses waited until a point where he could make a connection between the imputed righteousness that's necessary and the Savior. Lest someone fall into error thinking that righteousness could be found in any other way other than believing in God's promise to send the Savior. And so the question that we have to ask is, so did Jesus have anything to do with the righteousness of God being credited, being imputed to Abram? Yes. Yes, it did. In fact, it had everything to do with God's righteousness being imputed to Abraham. Because there is no grace apart from Christ. There is no righteousness to be imputed from any other place, any other source, any other person apart from Christ. There is no salvation apart from Christ. It is only found in Him. There never has been, there never will be salvation by any other means. Abram specifically believed that the promise for a Savior would come through his line. The promise that was made in the garden all the way back in Genesis chapter 3.15, Abram believed that that was going to come through his seed, that the Savior would come through his seed. Now if you're still in Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 16 with me. Paul writes, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, which is Christ. That's an important piece. That's very important for us to understand. So the word offspring isn't plural. It's singular. The text wasn't referring to a people. It was referring to a person. It was referring to the one and only Savior who could save humanity, who could save anyone who would put saving faith in Him. It was referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Abram believed. He believed that the promised Messiah would come through his descendants. 
Jesus said, Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. He understood that Jesus was coming. He understood that the Messiah was coming. And he rejoiced that it would be coming through his descendants. That the Christ would be coming through his descendants. Galatians 3.8 told us that God preached the gospel to Abraham. That's what Abraham, that's what Abram believed. God promised more than a son to Abraham. He promised a Savior. He promised a Savior who was perfectly righteous. Whose, whose perfect righteousness would save those who believed in Him. Abram's greatest need was the same as our greatest need. The same as your greatest need. The same as my greatest need. The same as everybody's greatest need. A Savior. And not just any Savior. You need a Savior who is perfectly righteous. You need a Savior who has God's own righteousness because that's the only righteousness that God acknowledges. And that is our greatest need because our greatest need is to be justified before God. To have a righteousness that's less than perfect is to have no righteousness at all as far as God is concerned. The best that we have to offer is filthy rags. It's not enough to be religious. It's not enough to be ritualistic. It's not enough to even be a a very good, moral, upstanding citizen. Hell is going to be filled with religious people. Hell is going to be filled with upstanding citizens who did good things. But there will not be one person in hell who has received God's perfect righteousness imputed unto them. There will not be one person who has received God's righteousness in hell. And so our greatest need is to have God's perfect righteousness imputed to us by the Savior. For that reason, the wisest thing that anybody can possibly do is to repent of trusting in yourself. Repent of trusting in the promises that you've made to God. Repent of all the efforts that you have made thinking that that would be enough to make your standing right before God. Repent of anything that you have believed other than Jesus Christ and put all of your faith in Christ alone. Because here's the thing, your works, your efforts, your promises, they will all fail you. Your understanding, it will fail you. But Christ will not fail you. He will never fail you. He alone is the light in the night in which you wrestle with the darkness of the soul. Donald Gray Barnhouse said this, he said, quote, God's method of supplying our need is to give us fresh knowledge of Himself. For every need can be met by seeing Him. He didn't say new knowledge. He didn't say that that God's going to reveal something unique about about Himself to you that He hasn't revealed in His Word. No, He says fresh knowledge. Where do you find fresh knowledge? In God's Word. In God's Word. You, you, You go back to God's Word when you're struggling with doubts. You look to Christ. You're all in all. Your refuge and your reward. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for this incredible passage. We thank you for what it reveals about yourself, about us, about our need for you, and about how desperately we need to be made right before you. And how it reveals that all of our works and all of our promises and all the things that we might trust in aren't enough, that only you are enough. So God, we pray that you would teach us not to look to the world, not to look to ourselves, but to look to Christ when we're wrestling with the darkness of the soul, the dark night of the soul. Lord, teach us to cling to your promises, knowing that your promises are as good as done, knowing that you are completely faithful. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving us in our moments of fear, in our moments of faithlessness, in moments when we need to be brought back into right standing with you and reminded of your sovereignty and your authority and your goodness. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for sending a Savior whose perfect righteousness is imputed to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For His glory alone we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.